Alberta is one of the most stunningly beautiful parts of this country, but often when it's in the news, especially in eastern Canada, it gets a certain portrayal that isn't exactly favorable. Backwater hick, Alberta, uncultured, Alberta. And yet, if you've actually visited the place, you know none of those things are true. It's a wonderfully vibrant economy. It's a wonderfully vibrant culture in big cities like Calgary and Edmonton or smaller centers, be it High River, Red Deer, what have you. Wanted to take some time and speak with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith this week on the Full Comment Podcast. Hello, my name is Brian Lilly, host of the Full Comment Podcast, and we're going to talk about the issues surrounding her gender policy, her ongoing fights with Ottawa, which include the gender policy, and also what Alberta is about and what it's offering, why it felt it had to open an embassy in Ottawa. It will give you an insight into the province that you probably won't get elsewhere unless you're already in Alberta, because as I said, far too often, the province is portrayed in ways that don't match up with reality. We're able to join Alberta Premier Danielle Smith from her office in Calgary. Premier Smith, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Brian. I I thought I was going to be opening up uh, with your new uh, statement that came out about taxation, about the Heritage Fund. And and I thought, well, the issue of of gender and your gender policy is a bit in the rearview mirror now. But then the prime minister brought it all back up. He was in Edmonton just a few days ago and really going after you, both while he was there at a news conference and online since. he's taking a very different and an aggressive tone compared to you. Um, what, what's your response to him? Do you think that he actually understands uh, your policy, which seems to have widespread support? Well, I think the, the reason our policy has widespread support is because it's so reasonable. I mean, uh, I started with having met with many transgender individuals over the years, uh, knowing that we have a bit of gap in our um, our medical support for those who have transitioned, especially when it comes to a surgical aftercare, as well as the long-term support for, for hormone therapy and the, the impacts that has on a, a person for, for their lifetime. So we started by saying those are the gaps we need to fill. And then it begins the conversation about at what point should someone make the decision to make um, uh, life-changing and unalterable decisions to, to their uh, to their body that will affect their their their, um, their their ability to have kids, and it just seems evident that uh, over eighteen these are these are adult decisions, and so over eighteen is the age that we felt was appropriate to be making surgical decisions. Uh, but when you start getting on to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, that also starts you down a path that could lead to infertility. So we wanted to make sure that the decisions were made at a age that a child is able to fully comprehend the consequences of what they're choosing. So we, uh, we put a ban in place on age 15 and under being on those types of, of treatments. And we want to make sure that families have support with uh, mental health uh, support and good counseling so that as kids are figuring this out, the whole family is involved in it because it, it really is an entire family affair. So we wanted to ensure that the, the schools were working uh, alongside parents to make sure those kids receive support as opposed to keeping secrets. And so if, uh, if it is the case that a child is transitioned at school and everyone knows and the teacher is calling them by a different name and different pronouns and it's part of the, the school record, the families have to be involved in that. And then the final piece, of course, was on uh, transgender athletes. Well, I think we've heard from many female-born uh, athletes how unfair they feel that it is to, to compete against somebody who was male-born. And so we want to ensure everyone has an option to participate in sports. So more co-ed and and all gender categories, but also making sure that those sports, where especially there's an advantage, 
to those mm -hmm. who are male-born, that uh, we have a biological female-only category. So I, I think we got the right balance, and I, I think that um, there's a sort of a smear that the, the prime minister is trying to to bring forward against all parents who want to be involved in their in their in these really crucial decisions for their kids. And I, I think the reason why people are on on our side on it is they, they realize that it's very reasonable and balanced. Well, I think what was lost in much of the coverage of your announcement several weeks ago now was that you did start with the uh, the decision of saying, okay, look, uh, there are gaps in care for people who are going through a transition. We will look after that. We will provide supports. That was pretty much ignored and it was uh, portrayed as you attacking the trans community. And nothing could be further from the truth. Right now, uh, the transgender surgeries that we pay for are, are being performed in Quebec. And I can tell you that uh, uh, I just received a briefing, though, that says the phalloplasty actually has a 100% complication rate. So if you're going to have complications with that kind of surgery, you darn well better have people trained up and on site and on hand to be able to deal with that. So that was, that's very, been very much on my mind, is that when people make these kinds of decisions, that are, are going to result in a, a, a greater need for very specialized care, then we've got to make sure that we're, we're bridging that gap. And I, I, that is the starting point for us. But I think when we, when we were talking about what, what, uh, it, what occurs when someone goes through a transition, we have to be very clear about it. Because if you, if you do end up removing your reproductive organs, you're not able to have kids. And if you start onto puberty blockers and don't go pu through puberty, you're not able to have kids. And so I think that uh, we have to, to make a decision about at what age should a child make that decision. And I, I think most, most uh, studies and, and most assessment points to age 16 and 17 being the age that kids are, be, are able to understand the long-term consequences associated with that kind of uh, decision. And so that's why we, we, we put that out there as the, as the starting point. So we're going to continue to get feedback as we implement, but uh, the, the, the overwhelming feedback that we're getting is that we struck the right balance. The and polling would seem to indicate that, but the the prime minister uh, is portraying this as um, an attack that will lead to suicides, an attack on the trans community, on the LGBTQ plus community, uh, that it is far right politicians, that is social conservatives. I mean, anybody calling you a social conservative has never spent five minutes talking to you because that is definitely not where you come from within politics, unless things have changed. Uh, but as long as I've known you, that, that has not been something that I would ascribe to you. So how do you respond to, to the, the very personal and politicized attacks um, that, that you're facing, be it from the prime minister or from an awful lot in the media who don't seem to look at the issue, don't seem to um, look at the, the balance in your, uh, in your position the polling, where people are at, they, they just, you know, you've got the majority of people on your side, and yet you're the one constantly called controversial. Well, I would say that I, I hope that there's some good reporting done on the changing clinical practice around the world, because there have been other jurisdictions that took a, a look at this and realized that the process of diagnosing gender dysphoria needs more rigor. Um, and so they're also in places like the United Kingdom, and then the Netherlands, Finland, Norway, Sweden, that they're also questioning the, the clinical practice and developing new criteria and guidelines. And so we in politics have to be alive to the fact that, uh, that, that there are alternative views in, in the medical industry. 
and uh, among medical professionals. And I, I know that there's this uh, reflexive approach that seems to be taken in Canada, where once a narrative sets in, it, everybody assumes that there's no dissenting or alternative ways at looking at complicated issues. I have always taken a different view. Maybe it's because of the, the history that I've had. I, I, I think it's very important for us to not be closed-minded and to, to be aware that there are changing clinical practices and we have to be prepared to respond to that. So I, I don't accept what the Prime Minister is saying. I know that he's trying to get people angry and worked up. I have always looked at this through the perspective of the child. I don't think that it does children any good to feel like somehow they're going to be rejected. And the approach that has been taken so far, where there's this notion that teachers should be keeping secrets from families, I, I, think, I think that's outrageous. Um, we have to make sure that that, that child support it. And loving parents and loving families want to know what's going on with their kids. That has got to be the starting point that we have. We have to trust that we're going to, to make sure that, the, that, uh, that, that parents and, and kids stay together. Because that's the fact of the matter, is that when somebody makes this kind of life-altering decision, uh, a teacher is, is sort of a, a temporary influence in their life. A family is a permanent influence in a person's life. And I've been quite alarmed to see some of the discussion that thinks that uh, parents and families should be kept out of the mix. We, we need to know yeah. that as kids are walking these journeys, that they have their, their loving family members with them every step of the way. Well, the unfortunate part in my view, and I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on this, is that there is a... They begin at the starting point that families are inherently dangerous to their children. And we all know that some parents are not going to be accepting that some parents will be abusive, but that is the exception, not the rule. And the prime minister and critics of, many critics of your position and your policy, start with the idea that uh, teachers need to protect children from families at all times. To me, that is fundamentally wrong and backwards. And I, I tend to agree with you. We, we know that there are lots of of reasons why kids could potentially be at risk in a home environment is part of the reason why we have uh, child protective services. It's a, it's a very sad reality that there are some people who are not good parents and some kids who are at risk for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and But we, we can't presume that because some kids um, have, uh, have come into the child protective services that all families are bad. I, I think we have to start from the starting point that Families support their kids, parents love their children. And if we do have a very small number of cases where a child has to be removed to, put into, to be put into child protective services, then, then we'll be prepared to do that. There's, there's no justification for any child being abused or feeling at risk. And so we want to we make sure that those, those kids are feeling supported. But by, by, by having your starting point be that that families are going to reject, families are not going to be supportive. That's, that's outrageous. That, that is not the case um, in the vast, vast majority of cases. And I don't think kids should be given any kind of indication that they're going to be rejected by their families. Parents love their kids and well, parents want to know what's going on with their kids. That's the bottom line. Okay, last point on this issue. We had uh, Julia Malata on a little while ago, trans woman who um, you know, said, look, I'm not very good at sports, but here's my thoughts on the sports issue fully agrees with you that there are times where biological males have an advantage, but in other sports do not. And so she was actually quite complimentary of your uh, position on sport, but said, you know, there are some uh, sports where you could just do it by weight and height class and things like that. Hmm. You're pretty open, aren't you? You're, you're not saying a complete ban on uh, trans women in female sports. You're saying, let's figure it out. 
let's figure out uh, where we need to have a biological female-only category and make sure that, uh, that women and girls are able to participate in that category. I mean, one of the things to remember, maybe, maybe people don't uh, know exactly how vitally important participation in sports are to uh, a person's long-term aspirations in life, but 97% of women who end up in leadership positions played some kind of collegiate sport or, or high school sports on a sports team. So we don't want to create an environment where, where girls aren't challenging themselves because they're, they're fearful that they can't compete, they're fearful that they might get hurt, or they're fearful that they're not going to be competitive because of an unfair advantage. We, we want to ensure that this is the reason why we had a female sporting category uh, to begin with. It's why we wanted to have more young women and girls participating in sports. And so we want to make sure that that becomes an option. And it's quite true. It is the, it, there are certain sports where it's immaterial. I remember watching a show jumping uh, competition and in the end it was sort of a middle-aged uh, male rider up against a young female rider and she ended up winning. So there are some sports where you can have uh, cross all, all gender, it can be co-ed, and, and we want to make sure that we're embracing all of those options. Let's stay with uh, the Prime Minister and the relationship that he has with both you and with your province because there are times when you've surprised people, not necessarily me, but you've surprised people by working closely with them, um, including on the health accord. You obviously you know, needed to sign a, a health deal and you came to an agreement that both sides could work with. Maybe not everyone's not happy about all points, but you found agreement. And, and you've done that several times, but still Alberta seems to be a, a prime target for this prime minister in this government. Do you feel that Alberta is under attack from Ottawa far too often by Justin Trudeau and his administration? Well, you know, I wanted to give the prime minister the benefit of the doubt that uh, he had just made a decision to put Stephen Guibault in the environment ministry and that he wanted to give him the latitude to bring policy forward. But, I, but a leader also has to know that when their minister is um, going off in a direction that is harmful to the country, harmful to national unity, when they're proposing policies that are unachievable and impractical, when they're creating that kind of division, it's the job of a leader to step in whoa, and say, whoa, hold on a minute, there, there might be something that I need to do some course correction on here. So I've been giving the prime minister the benefit of the doubt that he understands that a net zero power grid in Alberta is not achievable, that he understands that a, a 2030 emissions target that's too aggressive is actually a production cap, that he has no business uh, doing, um, uh, trying to put forward a, a policy to have zero emissions vehicles sold 100% by 2035, um, that uh, when, his, when his minister said that we're not building roads anymore after everybody's going through the effort of trying to invest in zero emissions vehicles, like at what point does the prime minister step in and say that his minister of environment has gone completely off the rails. And so that's what I've been encouraging him to do, to come to the table, to work collaboratively with those of us who want to find a solution. I, I've put forward an emissions reduction and energy development plan that would get us to carbon neutrality by 2050. That's our target. That's the target of our major trading um, partners. That's the target we should be working forward together. But we keep having an environment minister that is just pulling things out of thin air that uh, can't be implemented. And, and, and I he's think not, he has to be accountable for that. He's not just a minister who um, is picking fights with Alberta. It's every province. I mean, on Bill C-69, it was every single province joined in the, the, the court challenge to Bill C-69 because 
this is a minister that definitely goes too far on on C69, on other issues. Um, he, he seems to be picking fights at a time when the prime minister doesn't need more headaches. I mean, look at the polling numbers. He, he needs friends. He needs wins. And you don't get that by fighting with everyone. No, you don't. And, and look, that's where we're heading, where we're heading to an election and he's using Alberta as a punching bag to try to win votes in eastern Canada. It's the same old story. happens over and over again. Then let's just do it. Let's just have an election so that this can be resolved one way or another. And if uh, he loses the election, then we move into, into a different path. Then if, and if we win, then perhaps we'll have a, a more mature professional relationship again. But, but fighting this, this kind of campaign battle, when we're trying to, to get things done and try to, uh, trying to, to behave in a collaborative and cooperative way, it's not helpful. It was uh, the last election, um, and that was prior to you taking office, but in the last election, he campaigned in uh, BC's lower mainland and in the suburbs of Toronto against Alberta. He, he went to those places and warned suburban mothers worried about the health of their children. It, look at what's happening in Alberta, the, a COVID spike. Well, if you vote for the conservatives, the federal conservatives, your children are at risk. Uh, that is unhelpful to national unity. It, it is, and it, it's, un, it's unacceptable. I mean, the, the court has come down every time they lose, saying they, they have an anticipation, an expectation of cooperative federalism. That means that the federal government cannot just announce unilateral policy in our areas of jurisdiction, and yet they do it time and time and time again. The court calls them out, and then it's like they slough it off. They act like the court didn't render a decision. And so this is not the way a constructive confederation works. I get that we have different political views and we've got different ideas about how we want to to reach our targets. But I, I can tell you, when I get to the table with the first ministers, we come from all different perspectives too. Uh, NDP, liberal, conservative, and yet we've managed to find areas of common ground. That's how you're supposed to deal in an environment of cooperative federalism. And I'm, I'm just not seeing that the, the federal government is coming to the table in good faith that way. Well, when the prime minister was in Edmonton recently, it was for a housing announcement. Now, housing is primarily a responsibility of municipalities and then provincial governments, federal government has the least amount of responsibility. I know he's wearing the issue right now, and, and that's for political reasons, some of them of his own making. But not to get too wonky, but Quebec said to the federal government, no, you're not going to sign a deal with every municipality. You'll sign a deal with us and we will deal with it. Does it bother you that he's going across the country signing deals directly with municipalities? Should this have gone through the provinces? Because, I mean, if he had, there's only 10 provinces, you can get the changes implemented far quicker than uh, than having hundreds. I mean, we got 400 municipalities in Ontario alone. So you've got, you know, a few thousand across the country. Uh, wouldn't it have been wiser to just go to you? I know he doesn't get the photo ops, but wouldn't it that, that have been a better way to do it? Or, or do, does this not really matter to you? Well, you know, the thing is you can do joint press conferences. I've watched with great interest over the last couple of weeks. He's done a joint press conference with Doug Ford, did a joint press conference with Wab Canoe, did a joint press conference with David Eby, mm -hmm. and then he didn't even really bother to, to try to set up a, even so much as a courtesy call with me when he was in our province. So you can see that he is treating Alberta differently, and there's no reason for it. Uh, we, have, we have approached the, the federal housing minister and said we'd like to work together on a similar type of approach to Quebec, where we identify a certain amount of money that we would put up that they would then match. Because I, um, well, I, I'm very pleased for both Calgary and Edmonton and some of the other smaller centers that have been able to get these accelerator funds. We've got, we've got 350 municipalities in this province as well. 
And if you've got a federal government that's kind of picking the projects based on who has the, the best lobbyists, then you're going to be making mistakes and you're going to be missing out on some of the priority areas. That's what we can do as a province is we can, we have the, the, uh, the eyesight on which municipalities are really the ones that are doing the, the work to grow and the uh, areas where people want to move to. We've got about 24 mid-sized municipalities that are just bursting at the seams that need to continue growing. And by not by failing to work co cooperatively with us, he, he's politicizing something that is an issue that we all care about and we all want to solve together. And it's not helpful. All right, Premier Smith, we have to take a break. When we come back, I do want to ask you about your Heritage Fund and also your opening of an embassy in Ottawa and trying to sell uh, the province here in Toronto. So more of that when we come back. So Premier Smith, uh, you announced that you'd like to get the uh, Heritage Fund up to, what is it, between 250 and $400 billion? Did I hear that correctly with a B? That is, that is right. You know, when you look back on the history of our province, and if we had just had a sustained amount of investment in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund from that original deposit, just allowing it to grow. Uh, hold on, I should, I, I should stop you there and back up a little bit because I'm sure not everyone knows what the Heritage Fund is. I do. Tell us what this is because that helps explain why you, you think it should be a lot bigger now. Well, of course. So our Heritage Trust Fund began under Peter Lougheed with, with his vision in, I believe, 1976, where he wanted to deposit a third of the resource royalties that came in with the idea that it would grow over time. Now, of course, when we ended up with the oil crisis in the early 80s, the, the deposit stopped, but various governments have made inflation adjustments over time. But pretty well, all of the investment income has been taken into general revenues. And so we want to take an approach now where we keep that investment income in the fund, as well as make periodic deposits and grow the funds so it can be substantial by 2050. And the goal there is that you, that's your goal of getting to net zero, is it? Do you think that by 2050, the oil industry will be moving out of Alberta, that it, it will be subsiding? Well, I would say that we're moving towards carbon neutrality. I think that there is going to be a demand for our oil and natural gas for the foreseeable future. But I don't know what the, the world demand is going to be in 2050. And so we have to plan for a future where our resource might not be as in demand as it, as it is today and make the most of it in the meantime. And Norway has been very successful in that. There have been uh, other sovereignty funds, I guess you'd call them. Um, and, and so the idea is this will help balance out the, the province uh, and, and its economy when oil ceases to be as, as big of a player, as big of a, a factor. Well, look, I, I look at what Norway has done. They started after us, and they now have a $1.6 trillion fund. The Alaska Permanent Fund is uh, substantially more than ours, and they're able to generate a dividend for their people every single year. And then the sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East, I've, I spoke uh, when I was in the Middle East, I did end up doing a visit to Qatar, and they were pretty straight up about it. They, they have an objective to grow their fund to a trillion dollars by 2035. Uh, on the expectation that perhaps there's not going to be as great a demand for their natural gas. So it just seems like it's prudent management. If we have the responsibility of stewarding these resources as a subnational government, and if there is uh, going to be um, any kind of, of uh, difficulty getting our product to market or the value of it uh, declining over time, I think we have to make the, de the decisions now so that by 2050, we have enough revenue being generated from that investment fund to replace our reliance on resource revenues. If, if resource revenues are still valuable 
in 2050. And I, I can tell you our aspiration is that we want to be the best barrel in the market so that we are the, if there is a last barrel in the market, we want it to be an Alberta barrel. But it still may be that we have a, a longer time horizon than that. But I, I think we have what to, do you to do plan. With the, what do you do with the fund at that point? Does it become an investment vehicle? Uh, does it, you know, do you draw down on it to pay for healthcare and education? Uh, you know, does it become like the, I, I know you have talked about an Alberta pension plan, but in Quebec, where they do have a provincial pension plan, they use the case to depot as a, an economic uh, innovator and, and, and driver. So what, what would the fund be used for? Well, I, I hope that's a very robust discussion in 2050, because I, I think my job is to get it started and to get the expectation there that we can achieve this. And then it will be up to future governments to decide at what point do they convert it from a vehicle that's growing to a vehicle that's going to be generating income? I, I think that they'll probably be at some point along the way, depending on what our resource revenues are, some, some government will make a decision that a certain portion goes to offset the, that revenue loss. But uh, I'm, I want to stay focused on, on a target. Let, let's figure out where we can be by 2050, because that aligns with our carbon neutrality target of 2050 as well. And, and just have a little bit of additional discipline so that, so that we can, um, can make sure that we, we don't blow this next boom. I think we're in the middle of a, another oil and gas boom. We have uh, new pipelines coming on stream. Can you really be that's thirsty oil for our product? Hold on. You're in the middle of an oil and gas boom? I, I didn't think you could do that with Gibo and Trudeau in Ottawa. Oh, well, this is the nice part about some of the decisions that had, have been made historically, that our, our energy industry has really shifted to um, oil sands development, which is heavier oil. The uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline is, is um, really weeks or months away from being open. The Coastal Gasling Pipeline is completed, and LNG projects are, are being proposed. And so I, I think that there is an opportunity for us to continue increasing production, but we want to be a, a responsible producer. We also want to reduce the amount of, of greenhouse gas emissions. So I, I think we have a uh, 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 at least in the, in the near-term horizon, an am amazing opportunity to be able to, to benefit the world, uh, have energy security, energy affordability, as well as reduce emissions and, and be able to, to be a really responsible player globally. So yeah, I think, I think we've got some, in the near term, some, some really positive uh, things happening on the horizon. Okay. Am I wrong to describe, you were in Ontario a little while ago, you had to stop in Ottawa, stop in Toronto. Am I wrong to describe what you set up in Ottawa as Alberta's embassy? <laughs> I made a joke that uh, that's what uh, Quebec calls their uh, their office. I was corrected. They said they don't call it an embassy, but it was <laughs> kind of a funny joke. Uh, no, it's just an office, uh, and it is a way for us. We have an office in the um, uh, co-located in the Washington embassy as well for Alberta interest. We share a floor, actually, with Ontario. We've got 16 offices internationally. And it just felt like it was time for us to have an office in Ottawa. I mean, I, I look at Quebec. Quebec has the lion's share of its people are in the federal civil service. They're right across the river in Hull, and they feel a need to have an office in Ottawa. So if that's the case, then I, I think it's important for Alberta to be there so my ministers can come out, they can have meetings, they can meet with people who um, uh, share, share common interests, they can meet with ministers. And that was the, the purpose for it, is that I feel increasingly with the federal government interfering in our jurisdiction, coming up with policies, surprising them with us. We want to make sure we have someone on the ground so that we know exactly what the status is of some of those initiatives. You, uh, you, you were in Toronto trying to drum up business, trying to get people to invest in Alberta. Uh, I, I could easily make the pitch for uh, moving, but that's just to live in the area that you represent of High River because I've 
several years ago, spent a lot of time there. It's stunningly beautiful, as is the whole province. But what's your sales pitch for Alberta right now, especially to central Canadians who mostly hear bad things? Uh, not mostly bad things, but you, you know what I'm talking about. There, there is a, uh, a central Canadian Laurentian elite view of backwater Alberta. So what do you say when you, you come to Toronto? Well, I have to tell you, like, this is a, a, the most exciting place to be in, in Canada, maybe in North America, that we, we have created an environment here where anyone who wants to invest can do so and get a greater return on their money than virtually than anywhere else in Canada and most of the United States. Our 8% corporate income tax rate is 30% below what it, it exists in the combined uh, provincial federal rate in the rest of the country as well as uh, it, it better than 44 U.S. states. We've got no sales tax. We've got no capital tax. Um, we've got a well-educated workforce, some amazing premier universities and, and uh, polytechnics and technical colleges. And uh, we have an affordability uh, proposal or proposition that's the second to none. You can live not just in Calgary or Edmonton, but also Red Deer, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, Grand Prairie, Fort McMurray. There, there are and, and within an hour drive of any of those jurisdictions. So you can get an affordable home. If you want to own a home and have a backyard, that's a, a, attainable here. Um, and we, uh, we, we have a growing tech industry. We have agri-food. We've got oil and gas. We're going to be at the forefront of green technology. We've got a film industry that is vibrant and robust. Has that housing Sorry? part really taken off with young people? Are you seeing an influx of people in their, their 20s and early 30s saying, you know what, I'm I'm leaving Ontario and I'm going to Alberta because I can buy a house there. Is that happening? That That is happening. In fact, I just was even reading some stories about uh, some commuters from who are working in Vancouver but living in Edmonton or Calgary because yeah. it's so much cheaper. There was one one family, he's a, a marketing professor. He can buy a, have a home for $600,000 in Edmonton and then just hop on a plane and be in Vancouver for four days a week and then come home and be able to enjoy our, our beautiful outdoors and landscapes and cheaper property values and the lower cost of living here. So I would say yes, and, and others are just relocating here. Because I think a lot of, especially in the post-COVID era, uh, there's a lot more tolerance, I think, for telecommuting and being available on these kinds of forums. And so what, I, what I've heard from, uh, from, from a number of individuals is that if you, as long as you're within an hour drive of an international airport, you can pretty well work anywhere in the world if you need to be able to get somewhere. And we've got two international airports and we've got, um, we've got a, a, an affordable way of living and affordable housing in, 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 a, in a number of different municipalities within that distance. So... And of course, our beautiful mountain parks in yeah. Banff, Jasper, Waterton. Uh, there's so much to do from an outdoors point of view. It's not just all work. There's a lot of play as well. So yeah. I, I feel like that is the reason why not only businesses would want to invest here, but also they would want to move their employees here. They would want to hire here because I, I think that we can we can ar make an argument about the uh, prosperity that both the company and the individual is going to have by by being in Alberta. As someone that deals with Pearson Airport a lot, I truly appreciate Calgary because it works. Don't tell Edmonton I was nice to Calgary and not nice to Edmonton, but Calgary Airport works. Premier, thanks for your time today. If I don't see you uh, soon in Alberta, perhaps we'll see you here back in Ontario. You bet. Thanks, Brian. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and I hope that you take some time to share it on social media, send it to your friends, so on and so forth. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name is Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer, 
As I mentioned, you can subscribe to Full Comment on any podcast platform that you use, be it Apple, uh, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Help us out by leaving us a review, giving us a rating, and as I said, sharing it on social media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.